A train approaches the platform. For you, it's just the 12.20 from Galway. But for your little one, it's come from the North Pole. Cowboys and Indians are fighting on the roof. In the back carriage, wizards on the way to wizard school. And when it stops and you step on board, it could take you anywhere. Rediscover the joy of the train. Great fares for all the family at irishrail.ie. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is a writer, teacher and playwright whose plays for children have been seen in over 3,000 productions worldwide. He served for more than a decade as writer-in-residence at Summit School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and he's also the author of the novel The Bookman's Tale, which he's here today to read from and talk about. Charlie Lovett, welcome. Thank you. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you, please, uh, for listeners who haven't yet read it, um, to please read us a little bit from the bookman's tale? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think what I'll read is just the opening about three pages of the book. Sounds great. Hey on Why, Wales, Wednesday, February 15th, 1995. Wales could be cold in February. Even without snow or wind, the damp winter air permeated Peter's topcoat and settled in his bones as he stood outside one of the dozens of bookshops that crowded the narrow streets of hay. Despite the warm glow in the window that illuminated a tantalizing display of Victorian novels, Peter was in no hurry to open the door. It had been nine months since he'd entered a bookshop. Another few minutes wouldn't make a difference. There had been a time when this was all so familiar, so safe, when stepping into a rare bookshop had been a moment of excitement meeting a fellow book lover, a part of a grand adventure. Peter Byerly was, after all, a bookseller. It was the profession that had brought him to England again and again, and the profession that brought him to Hay on Wye, the famous town of books just over the border in Wales, on this dreary afternoon. He had visited Hay many times before, but today was the first time he had ever come alone. Now, as the cold ache in his extremities crept toward his core, he saw not a grand adventure, but only an uncomfortable setting, a stranger, and the potential for shyness and unease to descend into anxiety and panic. Anticipation brought cold sweat to the back of his neck. Why had he come? He could be safe in his sitting room with a cup of tea right now instead of standing on a cold street corner with a sense of dread settling into the pit of his stomach. Before he could change his mind, he forced himself to grasp the door handle, and in another second, he was stepping into what should have been welcoming warmth. Afternoon, said a crisp voice through a haze of pipe smoke that hovered over a wide desk. Peter mumbled a few syllables, then slipped through an open doorway into the back room, where books lined every wall. He closed his eyes for a moment, imagining the cocoon of books shielding him from all danger, inhaling deeply that familiar scent of cloth and leather and dust and words. His rushing pulse began to slow, and when he opened his eyes, he scanned the shelves for something familiar, a title, an author, a well-remembered dust jacket design anything that might ground him in the world of the known. Just above eye level, he spotted a binding of beautiful blue leather that reminded him of the calf he had used to bind another book. Could it have been nearly ten years ago? He pulled the book from the shelf, reveling in the smooth, luxurious feel of the leather. Taking a closer look at the gold stamping on the spine, Peter smiled. He knew this book. If not an old friend, it was certainly an acquaintance, and the prospect of spending a few minutes between its covers calmed his nerves. An inquiry into the authenticity of certain miscellaneous papers by Edmund Malone 
was a monument of analysis that unmasked one of the great forgers of all time, William Henry Ireland. Ireland had forged documents and letters purporting to be written by William Shakespeare, and even the original manuscripts of Hamlet and King Lear. Peter turned past the marbled end papers to the title page. It was a copy of the first edition of 1796. He loved the feel of heavy 18th century paper between his fingers, the texture of the indentations made on the page by the letterpress. He flipped a few pages and read, It has been said that every individual of this country, whose mind has been at all cultivated, feels a pride in being able to boast of our own great dramatic poet, Shakespeare, as his countryman, and proportionate to our respect and veneration for that extraordinary man, ought to be our care of his fame and of those valuable writings he left us. Peter smiled as he recalled reading those valuable writings from an actual copy of the first folio, that weighty 1623 volume of Shakespeare's works in which many of his plays were printed for the first time. He was calm now, all sense of dread and panic banished by the simple act of losing himself in an old book. Remembering how that first folio, given the opportunity, always fell open to the third act of Hamlet, he spread the covers of the Malone and let the pages fall where they would. The book opened to page 289, revealing a piece of paper about four inches square. The brown foxing on the pages between which the paper had been pressed told Peter it had been there for at least a century. Out of habit, more than curiosity, he turned the paper over. The sharp pain that stabbed his chest almost made him drop the book onto the dusty floor. He thought he had outrun that pain, that he could escape it with distance and distraction, but even in the corner of a bookshop and hay on why it had found him. Knees suddenly weak, he slumped against a bookcase and watched, as if in a dream, as the paper fluttered to the floor. The face was still there. He closed his eyes, willing the face and all that went with it to retreat, willing his pulse to slow once more and his hands to stop shaking. He took a deep breath and opened his eyes. She lay there calmly, serenely, looking up at him, waiting. It was his wife. It was Amanda. And that's how the book starts. Yes, and it's actually quite lovely to hear that after having read the whole book, too. I, I recommend anybody who reads it to go back and read that first that first section because it, it, encapsulate, it encapsulates everything in the book, doesn't it? It does. You know, I, was, I thought about afterwards the fact that I had in, in school an assignment where we had to write a paper about how the opening passage of a work of literature encapsulates the whole work of literature. I did Twelfth Night, and I think this does. It introduces Peter. It introduces the fact that he's a widower. Uh, that he is involved in the rare book business and introduces Shakespeare and forgery and all these things that become sort of central to the um, to the book as it develops. Mm. And we get so much of his character too. I mean, the the anxiety and the calming effect of the books and even Amanda, it, it's all there. Absolutely, Peter is, um, suffers from a social anxiety disorder. I think is the way we would put it in this day and age. But um, and he he's sort of a very a very introverted uh, person who has used the world of books to kind of hold other people at a distance until he meets Amanda. And, and she's the one person who uh, seems to be able to sort of bring him out of his shell and, and into society. So when he loses her, uh, he loses much more than just um, his wife whom he adores. He sort of loses his ability to, to interact with the world. Mm. So how did the book come about? What's the origin? Well, um, you know, I've been writing for a long time, and I'd always um, liked the idea of writing a novel, and I've written a, a couple of novels before this one, uh, one of which will hopefully always remain in the bottom of the desk drawer. Uh, 
which was really just to prove that I could do it, uh, and the other was published by a tiny little um, micro press. Um, but this book, I, I think it was uh, about 2008 or so. I was um, I was actually on a family vacation, and we were in Yorkshire, and I was walking alone in the Yorkshire countryside, and thinking about the fact that I had been in Yorkshire one time and gone to this old um, chapel that had some medieval sculptures in it. And the chapel was on the grounds of an estate where the main house was just sort of in crumbles, and the people were living in, in um, caravans in the garden. And I was thinking about all of that and what I wanted to write next, and the, and the first ideas for this book started to come to me. Um, and I think the reason for me that this book uh, has been much more successful than things that I've written before is because it really it centers around things that are a part of who I am and that are, that are things that I'm passionate about. I, I was Like Peter, I was an antiquarian book dealer, and I, I collect rare books. And um, like Peter, I have a passion for the English countryside and for English literature. And so um, I, I think writing from a place of my own passions uh, made it a real pleasure to write the book. And, and I think that comes out in the pages. I hope it comes out in the pages. Mm. And of course... People who read books tend to love books as well. So, you know, it, it's very, um, in that sense, it's very inclusive. You know, we all, I think anybody who reads the book will be, I guess, pleased. It'll be pleasurable to, to read the very detailed descriptions of the books that, Peter, that um, you know, Peter handles. I hope so. I think, you know, in, in, in the strict sense of the plot, uh, Peter is the hero of this book. But, but in another sense, books are the hero of this book, you know. I think it sort of celebrates all the different things that books can, can do and can be. And in this day and age when um, not all books are physical objects that we can hold in our hands, you know, some of them are just files that we download onto our iPads, um, I think it's nice to sort of step back and appreciate um, all that a physical book can be above and beyond just a, a container for text. And, and Peter experiences books in so many different ways historically and emotionally and um, in terms of their, their value because of who the previous owners of the books were and all these, these kind of uh, things that allow us to see all the different personalities that a book can have. Mm. And it's quite interesting. I mean, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about this too much when I was reading, but of course the whole plot of the book, you, you know, you, you couldn't have that with an electronic book. You, you just, the whole notion of finding something that's tangible and chasing the path through that, those tangible objects. No, you really couldn't. I mean, Peter uses this expression, the holy grail. He says he, you know, and for him, um, his holy grail in terms of looking for books is to find a book that will, that will sort of change the history of literature, that will help us learn something we didn't know before. His, his great book-collecting hero was an Elizabethan named Robert Cotton, who famously saved the manuscript of Beowulf. So none of us would have been able to read Beowulf without this, this book collector. Um, but it's a term that, that I've heard book collectors bandy about. You know, what's, you know, we get together and we have a couple of glasses of wine and people say, oh, what's your holy grail? Um, and, and, yeah, you really couldn't have that sort of holy grail experience with, um, with an electronic book because that's, you simply hit a button and there's another one of them. You know. Yes. And, uh, of course, books are partly the hero of the book, and Shakespeare, too, <laughs> has a bit of a role to play. Um, it's amazing, really. I can remember when I was at university and uh, the con controversy of whether or not Shakespeare wrote his plays was was still raging then. Um, it's still raging today, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, I think I try to present it in, in Peter's world more or less the way that it is now, in that, that the, 
the broad base of academia, I think, accepts that William Shakespeare of Stratford was the um, was the author of the plays. But there is, um, as we would say in, in America, there's reasonable doubt. You know, there there are enough odd things about it that that means that there's. I think unless someone like Peter comes up with some sort of absolutely incontrovertible evidence, there will always be people who will say, well, you know, this was a man who had no formal education, and yet how is he writing about all of these these things about law and about medicine and about the Italian court and about, you know, naval practices and all this with, without having had any formal education? That that always kind of throws a little bit of, of doubt in it. Now, for myself, um, uh, I stick with good old William Shakespeare of Stratford. He, I, I think he's the one who wrote the place. But, but I, I do admit that there's room for doubt. Yes, I think that's part of the charm, of course, the, the self-made man aspect of it. Absolutely. I mean, I think everybody wants to believe that um, if you're a genius, you're a genius. And, and uh, if, if you need to know about – and, of course, again, the wonderful thing about books is if you need to know about the Italian court or medicine or law or naval practices – you can find a book that will tell you about those things. Even in the 16th century, you can do that. Yes. Uh, Shakespeare himself is so much more attractive than, say, having it be Marlowe. But is it, is it your, is that your holy, holy grail? Do you have a holy grail? And uh, well, have you just um, given it to yourself, in effect? My, uh, my personal collection is, is centered around uh, Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And so, um, and, and it's sort of, I guess you would describe my collection as Lewis Carroll and his world. I mean, I have a lot of, things that are sort of setting his works and his life into context. Um, so I guess I would say that my holy grail would be, there, there are three volumes of Lewis Carroll's adult diaries um, that went missing sometime in the 1920s or 30s. Uh, they had belonged to the family and just, you know, one day somebody went down the basement to look for them and they weren't there anymore. And uh, that would be a nice thing to find. Um, it wouldn't, they wouldn't belong to me if I found them. They'd belong to the British Museum. But um, like like Peter, you always have these dreams of what if I opened the box and there they were, you know. Yes, and I suppose you'd write the paper. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, as Peter himself says in that little tussle. Um, so Peter ends up in Ox Oxfordshire, and you talked about walking on the Yorkshire moors and, and you know, thinking about, um, I, I guess, the, the idea that at least in some part, um, England would have to feature in this book. Mm -hmm. But was it your intention initially to write this kind of you know, dual multinational book? Um, you know, I think when I first started working on the book, I did have this idea that there would be a, a mystery that had its roots in a fairly distant past, you know, at least at least Victorian past, if not if not farther than that. Uh, and that there would be sort of characters during that time period and characters during the present time period. And then when I when I hit on this idea of having this Shakespearean artifact, that that sort of took it back another two or three hundred years to to the time of, of Shakespeare and, and Marlowe and all the other Elizabethan writers. Um, and the thing that I that I used to sort of tie these these three time periods together, the Elizabethan, the Victorian, and the contemporary time period. Um, is that there's a there's a bookseller as a character who features prominently in, in each of the three time periods, um, and they're very different characters. And the, the Elizabethan one is is sort of a roguish, you know, not completely amoral, but he's you know he's not above um, pulling some tricks to get the books that he wants. Um, and uh, the the Victorian gets involved in the world of forgery and, and historical documents, and then the modern character, of course, is Peter, um, who also commits a few little petty crimes, but generally to a higher purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I think his anxiety saved him in a way. He's, they make him so um, credible. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, to me, uh, a lot of people have said to me, oh, I, I really like Peter and Amanda. I like them so much. And, I, and I, my reaction to that is, well, I'm very happy that people like the characters. But on the other hand, I wonder that if we, if we actually met these characters face-to-face, these characters who both in their own way sort of live separately from the world and have, have created these sort of integral lives for themselves, I think if we, when we first met them, I'm not sure that we would instantly take a liking to them. You know, I think it would take, sort of take some time to get to know them if we met them in the flesh. And that's the wonderful thing about, about writing is you can, you can allow your reader to meet a, a character in a way that they wouldn't if they were meeting them you know, face-to-face and, and having that first impression that you get that's based on you know, a minute or two of conversation or what someone's wearing or how they react to you or how they smile or shake hands. Instead, we kind of get to know Peter from the inside out, and I think that makes him more attractive to the reader and more sort of acceptable. Yes. I, we also get to know the story from the inside out, don't we? I mean, we, we effectively live out the mystery. Right. I think so, yeah. 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 Um, I guess maybe to a certain extent, then, um, that's one of the reasons why books are places of comfort and safety, that, you know, we we plunge into them without having to go through those superficial um, machinations. Why do, do you think that's part of the reason why, to Peter and to many other people, I think a lot of people can relate to that, um, books, libraries, bookstores are places of comfort and safety? Absolutely. I mean, you can, you can surround yourself with whatever world you want to surround yourself with. Um, the novel I'm working on right now, the, the main character is introduced to the world of books by her uncle, and they're sitting in his flat one day and and he says do you like you know being here and what he means is would you like to live in this flat would you like to live in london and and she says do you know this is my favorite place in the world and he points to the pages of the book that she's reading and he and she goes no he says this is your favorite place in the world here in these pages um and i think those pages because they can be anywhere or anything or anyone um all of us can find some sort of book that 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 is our that is our comfort place Uh, Yes, I suppose it's also comforting in the sense of, well, you know, Amanda's gone, but her her picture's still between the pages. You know, there, there's a sense of immortality there. Sure, and I think one of the things that Peter learns, I mean, Peter has these two great passions. He has his passion for, for Amanda and his passion for rare books. And, you know, he loses one of them. And for a while, he sort of loses the other one because he's so, he doesn't deal with his grief very well at all at the beginning. Um, and when he sees this portrait that looks so much like Amanda, and yet can't possibly be because it's much older than, than it was painted far before she was born. Um, it sort of sends him down this rabbit hole uh, of, of this mystery that brings him back into that world of rare books. And I think he discovers that um, the importance of having, of having passion. Uh, and I think one of the things about being passionate about books or about anything else is that that's something that, that can sustain you when one, when one passion is lost you know, there, there can be other things that, that can sustain you. And for some people, that might be religion. And for some people, it might be rare books. And for some people, it might be literature. But, but to, have, to have something that, will, that you know will always be there, um, because for Peter, Amanda will not always be there. Mm. Yes. Uh, one of the, we, we talked about this notion of the detail, too. And, and I love the detail you provide around the book restoration. It's, uh, it's a quite a vicarious pleasure. Do, 
it, it was very precise. Did did you do it yourself? Have you done it yourself, or did you do um, it yourself? For the no, book? actually, uh, and it, it's very interesting. So many people have singled out that scene, and I thought when I when we were going through the editing process, I thought for sure that my editor was going to ask me to to cut that down or maybe to get rid of it. That it was going to be too technical, and she said, "No, no, no. This is this is Peter's love letter to Amanda. This restoration because he restores this book for Amanda." And it was actually, uh, for me, the, the process was gleaned uh, from a book called A Degree of Mastery by a woman named Annie Wilcox. And uh, I, it was a very slim little book about her apprenticeship in, in the book arts. And, and I read it again and again and again. And I actually um, got an email from her not long ago saying that she is, she's a bookseller now. And she said she's been enjoying selling the Bookman's Tale. And one of her customers came up to her and said, you know you're in the acknowledgments of this book, don't you? And uh, she was very pleased to to see that. So it's it's just another one of those wonderful ways that that books can connect people to each other. Yes, and it, it's good. I mean, you must have been a little bit nervous that she might have picked you up on something, but obviously yeah. you got it all right. Um, she said that um, she said she. I, I said right off the bat when I when I wrote back to her, I said, you know, anything that's right is because of your book. Anything that's wrong is because of me. And she said no. She felt like it was it was pretty accurate. I think there was there was one thing. I think it was the stamping of the of the leather that she said. It's because it's harder than it sounds. Um, it's actually quite a, quite a tricky thing to do. Um, but I thought, you know, I I think it's nice for the for the reader to kind of go through those steps of taking this book that is that is sort of broken and forgotten and torn and falling apart, which in many ways is what Peter is at the beginning of the novel, and then mm-hmm. seeing Peter go through the process of of bringing it back to life as he himself is brought back to life as the novel progresses. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now tell me a little bit more about Amanda, um, both Amandas, <laughs> Amanda Devereaux and, and the other Amanda. And we get her, she, she's a wonderful character and we understand that she, through her love for Peter, that she has a, a great, um, I guess a great sense of tolerance and caringness. But we don't know too much about her particular passion, only in, in hints. Yeah, I mean, we know a little bit about her. She's her passion really is sort of art history and interior decor. She's really interested in the in the pre-Raphaelites and William Morris and that whole English arts and crafts movement. And we get yeah, we get hints of that from the books that she's reading and from the way that she decorates their cottage together uh, and sort of the the things that she does. But it's it's true that um, she it, it surprises me and and I don't know if this is a I don't want to sound like I'm bragging on myself, but it just is, it was a surprise to me the extent to which people relate to Amanda when you consider the small amount of time that she actually spends on the stage of the book. Um, you know, the time frame, the, the book is told in these three time frames, the present-day mystery, and then the, the middle time frame is the, the story of Peter falling in love with both Amanda and with rare books, and that's that's the one where Amanda shows up, so it's just a third of the book. And then she's only in... Some of that, you know, and so she's really not on stage for for a lot of time, and so I needed to to use more shortcuts kind of in developing her character than with a character like Peter, who's on in you know except for the historic timeline, he's on in every scene in the book. Um, so I did have to kind of drop these hints about you know she's reading this book or she's admiring this painting to to get a sense of her um, her passions, but I think the the way she connects with Peter at the beginning is, is, and the way that he connects with her is that each each of them senses that the other is a person who is sort of somewhat out of place. I mean, he says, at one point he says he sensed that Amanda, like him, was someone who 
who occupied the margins of Ridgefield University. Um, and the original name of the book, actually, my working title for the book was Marginalia, um, which refers both to the writings in the, in the margins of the book that Peter finds, but also to the idea that, that at the beginning of the book he's really living on the margins of his life and that the book is about him moving back into the text of his life. Mm. I, I also felt with both Amanda and Peter that because of the parallels with the historical characters that they're they're linked to, that there's almost a, a sense, not almost mystical, you know, that there is a, a, a kind of a, a connection between those characters and then that they have that depth. Yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to try to connect the, the different time frames with one another, both through character and through story. So, for instance, um, when when Peter is struggling in the, in the front line of, of the book, The Mystery, that goes on in 1995 to try to determine whether a book is a forgery or not. Then in the middle story, he's learning about forgery and his sort of training with learning about the world of rare books. And in the back story, we're actually meeting some actual uh, 19th century forgers. And so there's, there's things like that that sort of carry these themes um, all the way through. And, and also let you see that the, that the passions that Peter has... Um, and the things that fascinate him, those people have had those passions for you know hundreds of years, and he's he's part of this long line of of, of bookmen, if you will, who um, this, this will continue. And he, I think he starts to see himself a little bit in that um, historical context. And if he doesn't, certainly the reader does. Mm, for sure. And, and how did you um, make? The, how did you go from marginalia to the bookman's tale, which is almost Chaucerian? Uh, yeah, it was. It was interesting. Um, I, you know, I thought I had the perfect title, one word. You know, sort of an. And and uh, my agent said, no, nah, it's too. You know, it's too literary. It's too. Uh, it'll. It'll. You know, it would appeal to all the people that I thought were going to read my book, but I thought 150 book collectors were going to read my book, and that was going to be it. You know. Uh, and so he actually marketed it to when he was when my agent was selling it. He titled it the First Folio, which we both agreed wasn't quite the right title because the Shakespeare's First Folio is is only, if you will, marginally a part of the storyline. Um, and but under that title, it was bought in ten or eleven different uh, markets, including the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and about nine um, foreign markets. Uh, and then we had I had. The discussion with my editor, uh, Catherine Court at Penguin Books, went on for <laughs> some months about what the title should be, and we considered a lot of different things. And finally, I, I wrote out about a four-page email with all my title ideas and thoughts. And she came back with a bookman's tale, and I said, how about the bookman's tale? And we sort of settled on that. But several people have noted that um, it, yes, it has these Chaucerian overtones, and also um, the Shakespearean play that is central to the plot line is The Winter's Tale, and so it kind of has echoes of that title as well. Mm, yes, and maybe just a touch of camp as well, just a yeah, touch. Yeah. And then the, the the subtitle, The Novel of Obsession, is that that was not my idea either. That was someone at Penguin who came up with that. But as soon as they did, I started to see how well it worked, that, um, that not just Peter, but that many people in the novel have these obsessions. And I, and I started to see how, at least in the world of this novel, that obsession is passion without moral compass. That when people in the novel take their passion to a point that it begins to affect their morals, um, that's, that's the point at which it becomes obsession to me. Uh, and that happens with a lot of different characters in the novel in different levels. I mean, in some characters it's something as simple as Peter stealing the watercolor out of the book in the first scene. Um, it's you know pretty small little crime, and then with other people, it's 
committing murder and, and, and other things. Mm. Yes, again, more parallels there. Um, so you've written and published 11 books of nonfiction and, you know, a zillion plays. Um, do you find fiction hard, a harder form to work with in plays and nonfiction? Um, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's just a different, you do your research in a different way. I mean, I still, obviously with The Bookman's Tale, I did do a lot of traditional research in terms of, you know, I had to make sure that uh, I was presenting the people, because there's so many real people in the book from William Shakespeare right the way down to some of the Victorian uh, people. And I had to be sure that I had their, they were living at the right time and, you know, sort of in the right places and doing the basic things that they did there. I was using them as fictional characters, but nonetheless, I wanted to be sure I kind of had it right. But, but whereas with a nonfiction book, you know, a huge amount of the work is, is the research. Um, and, and a smaller amount of the work is sort of putting it all together in a form that somebody can read. Um, with the fiction book, the balance is a little bit the other way around. But a lot of the research for, for a work of fiction is simply sitting around and thinking about it. You know, it's, it's not research in terms of going and looking up a book. It's sitting around and thinking, okay, what if he found a book that had something in it? Okay, what could it be? You know, and sort of that immersing yourself in an imaginative world um, and, and then coming out and writing the story. So it's, it's different, but I don't, I don't find it more or less difficult than, uh, than nonfiction. Mm. So we're almost out of time. We're in our last few minutes. But um, tell me about the projects you've got on the burner, um, your Lewis Carroll book and, uh, and Jane sure. Austen, yeah, too. The, the follow-up novel to The Bookman's Tale is, is tentatively titled um, First Impressions. And it is, it is not a strict sequel in that the, the, it doesn't involve the same characters. But in, in the heroine is a young woman in the present day named Sophie Collingwood, who's a big uh, Jane Austen fan. But there is also a historic timeline to the novel as well. Not not two timelines, but just I mean, not three like in the book sale, but just the two. And the historic story takes place mostly in 1796, and Jane Austen is the central character in that story. So whereas Shakespeare appears briefly on the stage of the Bookman's Tale, Jane Austen is a, is a main character in in, the, in First Impressions. And that book is the second draft is completed, and um, my agent is reading it even as we speak. So we'll make some decisions about that in, in the fairly near future. And then I'm also working Wonderful. on a nonfiction book about Lewis Carroll and his faith, um, which is something that's kind of been overlooked by a lot of them. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that when that comes out and, and the Jane Austen book. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Charlie, thanks so much for talking with me. And if you want more of The Bookman's Tale, you can drop by Charlie's website at www.charlielovett, that's L-O-V-E-T-T, 